What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Critical Mass Podcast, the podcast brought to you by the Center for Social Impact at UVU. I'm Hannah, and I'm this year's host. Now, in physics, the term critical mass refers to the minimum amount of material needed to spark a chemical reaction. And in social impact language, we use the term critical mass to talk about the minimum number of people we need in order to create social change or even the initial protest or event that sparks a social movement. This year, the pod's been spotlighting student activists, organizers, and advocates. But this episode is specifically about student journalism. Not even like the typical student journalism you're probably thinking of. I'm talking like guerrilla student journalism. Newspapers and publications ran by students, for students, and for the community. Those kind of newspapers that publish the stories of the black and brown, the queer and the trans, and the marginalized peoples that don't get a voice in mainstream journalism. Now before we get started, I just want to do a quick disclaimer. Critical Mass Podcast is produced by the Center for Social Impact at Utah Valley University. This episode was written and produced by students, so any opinions expressed by our interviewees, or even by us, don't necessarily reflect the opinions or values of the Center for Social Impact or of UVU. There's a big things we're going to talk about before we can really talk about guerrilla student journalism, and one of those is the concept of free speech. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees two rights that we're going to be talking about today. The freedom of speech and the freedom of the press. This means that the United States government cannot jail, fine, or impose civil liability on people or organizations for what they say or write except in exceptional circumstances, like if they're making a direct call for violence. But press agencies have always been privately owned in the United States. Their owners more or less have full reign over what is reported, so depending on the owners, the press have historically been used to either support or protest various establishments and systems, whether that be administrative policy and laws, wars, social conditions, or a bunch of other things. That gives the press a really essential role in the work of social change. And one huge example of that was when the press began publishing the narratives of the formerly enslaved or reporting on anti-slavery actions and activism in the antebellum and Civil War era. However, after the Civil War, there was a sharp decline in representation of marginalized groups in the press, and counter-narratives like the ones seen during anti-slavery movements remained largely invisible in mainstream reporting. It wasn't until the 1950s and 60s that the inequality of black and Latina groups in the states started getting some semblance of representation both nationwide and globally in the press. But that's not even to say that black and Latina communities or any other marginalized community were not trying to advocate for social change and better treatment. They certainly were, but their voices were not being platformed and distributed. In words, freedom of speech pretends to protect everybody, but in actions, the story has always been a little bit different for the marginalized. In fact, there's a pretty long, nasty history of censorship in the U.S., and black, brown, and queer America are all too familiar with what that looks like. When birth control was being tested on Puerto Rican women without their knowledge or consent in the 50s, the story stayed out of mainstream journalism for decades. Another example is the Stonewall Riots, which were a series of riots protesting police brutality against queer folks in New York in the late 60s. Those riots were largely underreported or even misreported by mainstream media outlets. A headline from the New York Times on the riots read, Four Policemen Hurt in Village Raid, which frames the whole thing as something that was sad that happened to the police rather than the harassment of marginalized queer POC in the community. And there are many more examples where marginalized folks are aware of major issues and injustices occurring in their communities, but major media outlets either severely misrepresent or flat out refuse to cover those stories. So really, censorship has never really been a battle about what's being said, it's a battle about who's being heard. More than this, censorship can take many forms without limiting or silencing individuals outright. Media portrayals of minorities in fiction also play a major role in how people view or think of minorities. From minstrel shows to Hollywood blockbusters, marginalized communities struggle with being allowed to speak for themselves and share their lived experiences. And even when they do, they run into major roadblocks. Book banning, which is a more explicit form of censorship, has been on the rise recently, especially in the states. Privately owned institutions like private schools, bookstores, and coffee shops are at liberty to ban whatever books they please, and part of that is owed to the fact that they are privately owned. But public libraries, school boards, state universities, and a bunch of other public institutions totally participate in banning books too. I recently heard about a children's book called Fry Bread, a Native American family story by Kevin Malliard that was recently banned by a school board in Florida. Now, I read that book myself, and it's available to read here at our library at UVU, and it's completely innocuous. That book and many other books by queer, black, and brown authors are being pulled off shelves by the hundreds across the whole of the United States. Good thing, though, there are a few smart ways marginalized communities have created in order to represent themselves and spread new stories both within and outside their communities. One of these tactics is student journalism. Most listeners are probably familiar with official professional journalism, but most of the journalism are probably consuming is what's called citizen journalism. The term citizen journalism was coined by South Korean online entrepreneur Oh Yun Ho. 
who declared that due to the internet, quote, every citizen is a reporter, unquote. Citizen journalism is any sort of news reporting that is conducted by someone who is not a professional journalist, but that is still reporting on current events, usually using social media, websites, and blogs to publish their findings. That can look like people filming police brutality on their phones, live streaming an active school shooting, or filming a story of themselves talking about an instance of discrimination and posting it online. One of the biggest differences between professional journalism and citizen journalism is that citizen journalism usually happen immediately. Pictures and videos get tweeted and go viral in an instant. Often the impact of technology and citizen journalism can be the spark that ignites social movements for social justice. Student journalism, especially the kind we're going to be talking about today, is kind of a form of citizen journalism. When mainstream news outlets fail, underground journals, zines, and newspapers that feature marginalized stories written by the community for the community pick up the slack and give the community the representation that they deserve. A major example of student-led journals that publish whatever the hell they want is an old Latina student newspaper from the University of Utah that we mentioned way back in our first episode called Venceremos. Venceremos, meaning we will overcome, was started in fall of 1993 by a group of seven Chicano-Chicana or Mexican-American students and was the first and only bilingual student newspaper in Utah. The publication started in 93, but it has not run continuously since then. It has been active for some years and inactive for a few more, and then started back up again by a fresh batch of students. There's not a lot of information out there about them right now, since the newspaper is currently inactive, but after like seven hours of straight research where I found their old Facebook profile, Twitter profile, and even an old Pinterest page, I eventually was able to track down Dr. Sonia Aleman, who was a staff writer for the journal around the 2008 revival, and Flor Olivo, who was a student writer for the newspaper, and I got them both to agree to an interview, and that's what y'all are about to hear right now. It was while I was a graduate student that um, students, Chicano students and other students of color at the University of Utah revived Venceremos. And so um, I learned about it when their very first issue was um, distributed on campus. I saw it, the cover, I saw the title, I was very intrigued. And so I designed a course that students could enroll in and get academic credit for the work that they were doing. And in that way, there was at least, um, you know, some benefit that they were getting out of doing it. And and it wasn't like just on their free time, right? It was like through a a course. Mm -hmm. um, And it would allow us to have the resources um, in the communication department. I was the instructor for that course. We did that for, um, oh my goodness, how many years? Eight, seven years, seven-ish years that I was there. I mean, it really was student interest and student driven. I mean, I had nothing to do with it being brought back. Like I said, I I saw the final finished product that Mm -hmm. they worked on. And so I think it was, um, you know, students feeling that were channeling, right, their their activism. I think they were driven, they were activists first, Mm -hmm. right? They were really wanting to address issues of social justice on their campus, racial justice, economic justice, right? It was a a time where there was... um, another upswing kind of like an anti-immigrant kind of rhetoric and um you know that kind of discourse that they wanted to speak against and resist that was a really good way to channel right everything that they um were feeling and and the ways that they wanted to improve the experience of people on campus but more more importantly in the community so they really the 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 vision that they had was not necessarily that the paper was written for the campus audience, but that it would be distributed off campus to the um, communities that they felt needed to to see themselves and hear their stories and hear their voices the most. And so it was that drive um, that brought it back, right? It was more like seeing it as as a way of being advocates for their community. Um, So but it does take like a lot of special ingredients to bring it all together to actually result in a publication, right? There has to be a critical mass of students wanting to do it. So those are not things that institutions that are especially predominantly white institutions like the University of Utah is, um, is are designed to like kind of foster and cultivate for students of color, right? As a, as a space that they would need. They're not kind of thinking that way of creating um, the opportunity for students to like um, find their way there and then channel their their advocacy and their concerns and all yeah. that skill set. So they the, the students have to create it themselves. I think also a part that I found was interesting or that I really enjoyed 
about Vincent Hermos was that um, it wasn't just at the university. So there were a lot of people who were involved in the many aspects of like getting the newspaper out and, you know, just all of it that weren't just at the University of Utah. So it was almost like a way to distribute resources from, you know, this big institution that had access to like technology and like, you know, all the different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to put that out into the community in a way that was um, guided and then also um, like physically done by like students who were also part of that community. And so um, if you look at all the different iterations of Vincent and Mose, mm-hmm. it's really connected to the issues that were going on in the community outside of the university. And there were a few articles sometimes we would include, well, at least when I was involved, um, that we would include that were connected to, you know, University of Utah issues, but yeah. primarily the stories were connected to the issues or the things that were going on in the community um, for the people who were involved and also connected to the various identities. So if you look at the different years, there are some years where um, there's a lot more that's related to Chicana students. And then there's some that's more related to dreamers or then there are some times where it was more about parenting or um, resources, or there's sometimes where it was a lot of art and poetry. Um, so I think whoever was on staff was really helping lead many of the conversations about what actually got published. Yes, I love that. I think that's like what distinguishes student grassroots journalism from like big institutionalized kind of journalism, even from student newspapers like on campus, because then you guys get to like lead, I guess, where you want the project to go. Um, And you did mention that you have like a lot of you had a lot of community members um, like involved in the whole process of it. Um, But I guess I'm like I'm interested in like what, what kind of stuff you guys tended to publish. Do you have like any specific like stories you remember that maybe was like a favorite um and like where did you guys get your stories from i do have some favorites um i remember um one of our um long-standing contributors at the time he wanted to write about um ordinances that were being passed in the city in salt lake city that were restricting like um food vendors like specifically taco vendors that were Mm. popping up um and so there was these ordinances, right, were being passed to, to limit, to prohibit, you know, these these small entrepreneurs from being able to sell like a really good taco on the street corner. And so his story was to talk to those vendors and kind of get a sense of how they were navigating um, those policies. And so um, the title of that spread, it was a two-page spread that we did. We did it in the center so that we could run color. And it was carne guisada is not a crime. Um, he took the time to like, you know, go out and meet vendors on the corners where they were selling, yeah. um, you know, having to introduce who he was, establish some sort of rapport and trust, right, that he wasn't trying to, like, mess with them, make it worse for them, um, so they could tell them, you know, about who they were. Um, and again, that's, it wasn't necessarily like a University of Utah related issue, mm-hmm. but for the audience that we were serving and wanting to reach, right, like, that was really important, um, and something very familiar, right, that they would understand. And um, want to be able to to hear or listen to. Um, did, did community members ever contribute stories? We did always have like a pretty diverse um, pool of different people that wanted to participate and contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we definitely had a lot of stories. I would say that there's many stories that got published in Venceremos that maybe didn't get published anywhere else. Um, and so it also serves sort of like a history of the time period when um, the publications were happening. I would say that some of my favorite parts of the newspaper were the art and the poetry. Cool. So I can think of a few different covers that I really um, like thought were really cool and that people invested a lot of time in. Yeah, there's some like really stunning like covers that I ended up um, when I um, in my office at, there at the University of Utah, I would frame 
the covers. I would get them printed like on canvas mm -hmm. and I would frame them and hang it in my office because they, I mean, they literally were works of art and they were, um, the ideas from them were spurred by what the content was, was in that issue. Yeah. And so the, the artist, we would just kind of share with her, like, here's what we're writing about. Here's what stories look like. And that was um, like the resulting image was her vision. How was it distributed? So me or Sonia would submit the newspaper to the printer and the printer would let us know when it was done printing. So it's this huge printer over in Kearns. And so we would grab the van and go pick up the newspaper. When I was getting through school, I also had my kids, you know, and they were little. So mm. they would also come with us. <laughs> so we would go meet um meet at the distribution center and then every we would either have the van or people would take stacks with them at that time or meet us somewhere and then we would just go out and leave the newspaper at different um primarily I would say like Latino or Latina um like stores and um like community centers places where we knew people might be bilingual and would want to pick up a copy. And then of course we had um, distribution spots on campus as well. So we would just split it up and people would just take it where they could. Um, one of my, what, <laughs> I know I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Jared, <laughs> it was one of our distribution managers Two years ago, he like sent me a picture because he still had a few newspapers in his trunk. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get mad at me. Also, because I was kind of bossy, you know, I would be like, y'all need to get this out. You can't just have it in your car or whatever. <laughs> so, uh -huh. He was like, Don't get mad at me, but I just found a stack of newspapers in my in my trunk. <laughs> it was very like what we could do, you mm -hmm. know? And usually i think it was about 2000 wow issues that we began printing in the beginning but at one point we got up to i think 5000 um and people would pick them up and use them and we would sometimes have to redistribute you know cuz mm -hmm. we had like extras and it was cool it was it was a fun experience but it was definitely very grassroots and we definitely had to kind of make do with the people that could help at the time so yeah it was definitely a process and it was like at times like a caravan right we would just kind of like everybody who had a car everyone who had a couple of hours and we would try to at least a minimum pair people up because there was mm -hmm. a driver and then there was a person who would like be the runner yeah to go drop it off what were some of like the core values of Venceremos? And how did that drive like the kind of stories that you guys chose? So it was things like um, it had to be accessible, right? So whatever we wrote about, it wasn't going to be like super jargon heavy. Um, and it was one of the reasons why students work so hard to make the paper bilingual. Yeah. Um, we didn't get to do like every single thing we printed in Spanish, but we tried to do it as much as possible, again, based on our capacity, because we were right, relying on student like translators to do yeah. that. Because not um, even though we had a lot of staff members who were bilingual, not everybody was, and not everybody was comfortable writing in Spanish, even if they were like a bilingual speaker. So yeah. all those things were like the challenges that we juggled. But it was about accessibility. Um, it was about um, centering like the the community voice, right? So really, like when we thought about who will we talk to about that story, who do you want to interview, right? So we didn't go to oh, the president of such and such or the, um, you know, the public, the the elected official who is talking about that issue, right? It was about like what community member is impacted by it? Like yeah. what is their story? Um, another value was um, why do you want to write about it? So really trying to make it clear like why that person was invested in that story and have that be part of the story. So knowing that there was um, something that, um, 
that skews kind of representations of communities of color when it's not a member of that community telling that story. So they to write against that was like, put yourself in the story and let people know why you want to write the story. Like that was an okay starting point yeah. uh, or the the content that was produced by these students. Um, and then, and that wanted it to be um, like a call to action as much as possible in every single article, right? It wasn't like, okay, so now you know, or, oh, that was a feel-good story or that was a not feel-good story. It was like, okay, what do you do with this information? And so almost every every time we could, like, here's something you can do about this. Even if it's just, if you want to know more, go here. Sometimes that was the only place, the only direction that was left to go for a story, but it was, it was very intentional, right, to try to weave that into um, every story. And again, this was this emerged from just kind of listening to students um, talk about what they wanted it to look like. Um, I did have them reflect, like really try to um, have some self-awareness of why they were making the decisions that they were making, but it wasn't an outside model that someone came in and taught them or that they were like, you know, specifically looking at something and trying to be like it. It was like, here's the vision that we have and it would it would look like this and then okay the reason it looks like this is because we do these things and so it was like that kind of a iterative process right of, of figuring that out yeah i would say okay so i can only speak for myself or like the reason why i joined and i would say that part of uh what attracted me to vencermos was that i was looking for a space on campus where I felt comfortable to like try to build like community for myself or for and for my kids because they were with me all the time when I was going to school and then when I went and participated in Venceremos it just almost felt like a space that allowed for people to question what being a Chicana or Chicano or Chicanex whatever that could mean for uh, different people. And I felt like in that space, I was able to really explore, navigate that, or decide what parts I wanted to be a part of and what parts I didn't want to necessarily be a part of. Mm -hmm. But regardless, um, being able to produce like a physical, I don't know, I just felt like, it wasn't just like talking or theorizing, but actually creating like something physical that we I could keep forever, you know, or that yeah. I could share with my community, with my family, um, with my kids. And so I think that's how I connected or what that meant for me. Vincent almost felt like a product or something like tangible that could be created by some of the space on a campus. There's a lot of, I would say, like consciousness building and there's a lot of conversation and community building. And then I think that for me, Vencermos was more like putting those things into action and bringing it out into the community um, in a way that's accessible. And then also that, um, almost like documents a history of all the different things that are going on um, in the community. It's really cool to see that it's almost like an intergenerational space that people have been able to, I think, develop skills and then also be able to contribute a little piece of history and specifically of things that have occurred here in the state of Utah. Have you ever had an experience where you felt like your work on the journal was like responsible for like real change in your community? At least for the 10 years that I was involved, I think a significant impact was creating a historical record of issues that occurred in the Salt Lake community at the University of Utah, um, like student environment being able to go back and look at the things that people cared about in those 10 years, I think that's a pretty cool impact.
Big thanks again to Dr. Aleman and Flor. It's literally been the work from people like them that has set the precedent that has allowed us to put this whole podcast together, talk with the people that we do, and share the stories that we share. And that's been something that's been really meaningful to me. Well, anyways, Vencedemos represents a lot of major values in student journalism that are super important, but it was a bit of a bummer to hear that they're not active no more. But that discovery is what drew me to dig a little bit deeper into student journalism down here in Utah County. And honestly, it seems like I really can't keep BYU's name out my mouth because we literally mention them every episode. But really, BYU's got a huge history of underground student journals, starting with The Radical, published in 1906. Then their institution-sponsored journal, The Daily Universe, began to be heavily censored throughout the 70s. And in response, several newspapers sprang up that were heavily anti-war, anti-conformity, and anti-establishment, including Zion's Opinion, 7th East press and the student review throughout the 70s and 80s, all of which were distributed to students in print. Students working for these journals often faced institutional disciplinary actions such as expulsion for publishing materials that were just a little bit too risque, including pieces that heavily critiqued the LDS church, which BYU is privately affiliated with. All this leads to today with Prodigal Press, the latest of independent BYU publications. The Prodigal was founded by undergrad students at BYU with the explicit intention of, quote, providing a space for stories that are not featured on official university platforms, close quote. The Prodigal provides a platform for students who would otherwise be completely silenced, such as queer and non-white students. This means that their pieces, which include poems, interviews, and articles, are viewed as inherently controversial and political just because the people talking are the ones that have been silenced for so long. Heartbreaking stories of queerphobia, racism, and little talked about issues in the LDS community, including abuse and misconduct of church officials, are frequently published by Prodigal Press. Some of these stories are published with titles like like learning how to take up space at the right hand of God, prayed for and prayed upon, and my favorite, drag will save us. Stories like this would be censored, silenced, and even punished if they went through official channels of student journalism at BYU. But those same stories are given the space to reach relevant audiences with Prodigal Press, who define themselves as not quite holy, not quite heretical. Now, I was able to talk with Tucker Pearson, a former BYU student who is now a student here at UVU, and the current editor on Prodigal Press about his experience with the newspaper and what the whole thing means to him. Prodigal is and was founded by undergraduate BYU students um, three years ago in 2020 um, because they were looking for a publication that wasn't really giving a voice to students and people living in Provo or going to BYU um, a voice uh, through like official university publication. Right, right. Um, because there's just a lot of censorship there. And so mm-hmm. um, it, there's, there's a little bit of... Uh, I don't know, caution to doing the work that we do still as active students of BYU in terms of retaliation. So the team thought it would be best if um, we had someone that was outside of that sphere since I am a UVU student. I'm a former BYU student, um, but uh, a couple years ago I did transfer over here to UVU. Mm. So it just made it a little bit easier in me being able to uh, speak like officially um, yeah, yeah, without like fear of retaliation or backlash yeah. or kind of like disciplinary actions, I guess, taken by the by the university. Um, okay, cool. So, so, anyways, I know a little bit about Prodigal Press, but why don't you explain a little bit about what it's about and how like y'all got started? I guess um, for listeners that have never heard before. Yeah, absolutely. So, Prodigal was started by six BYU students in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, actually. So, the first meetings of Prodigal. Um, were over Zoom with those six students when Mm -hmm. they realized that there was a lack in the community for... um, uh, Authentic journalism. Yeah, authentic journalism. That's a really great way to put it because uh, there's just a little bit of a skewed view here um, everywhere in Utah County, but especially on BYU campus. Um, So those students uh, started to put together stories from people that they knew. And it's super amazing, though, um, because Prodigal, like, there's really no, like set structure on what everyone does because everyone's Hmm. equal like uh, there's no leadership within prodigal it's a flat structure completely um so like this week i've been in the writing workshop with all the like journalists Mm -hmm. helping me craft my piece to be published which is super cool because that's never something i would have ever felt comfortable even doing Mm -hmm. and nonetheless like equipped to do it but because of prodigal now like it's giving me the opportunity now for my voice to be heard in a way that like I never even imagined, which is awesome. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's so exciting. Okay. So yes, you talked a little bit about like the kind of stuff that you guys tend to publish, um, in like three words, could you describe for me what kind of material that y'all tend to publish? I've seen some of your titles. They're pretty evocative. 
How would you describe it? Okay, can I use four? Yes, go ahead, okay. go ahead. Uh, I would say not holy nor heretical. Okay, yes, I was going to ask you about this because this is like your guys' tagline. Yeah, that is what the tagline. <laughs> yeah, I didn't just that? make that up, <laughs> folks at home. That was, that was lifted off the website. Okay, nice. What do you guys mean by that? And like, how does that tagline kind of represent the values of the publication? So obviously, especially at BYU, but I think anyone living within Utah County can like express that like, there's just the Mormon climate here. And that's right. a part of like living on the street that you live on. Right. It's it's unavoidable kind of thing. And so, um, but there's got to be a line to people that might still identify with that in a way. You know, Absolutely, a lot of people yeah. being raised here or going to school here. I'm not personally from Utah, but have lived yeah. in Utah now for a couple of years and do call it home now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... We were looking for something that was that fine line between the two Mm -hmm. um, of like in the church or out of the church or I don't know, like stalwart and faithful. And then, uh, you know, there's so it's such a spectrum. We were Mm -hmm. trying to get rid of that kind of black and white distinction that's often found here. Yes. Okay. I I guess you kind of answered this a little bit, but I'm interested to know, like, if Prodigal Press has like an editorial mission or like, what do y'all hope to accomplish with uh, the journal and like the pieces that you guys publish? Um, If I had to sum it up on like what the mission would be, and I know there's probably a statement that we've like officially (laughs) published, but like putting it all into, I don't know, like layman's terms, it would just be to like get people's voices heard it might even be easier to say the voice that we're not publishing. And it's that of like, I don't know, the, <laughs> the straight white student. Cause that's mm. the like primary voice that's being heard. And the only voice that wants to be heard in spaces like BYU, mm. it's, it's difficult for anyone of any, sh- like, I don't know, minority or demographic. That's not a part of the homogeneity of, of Utah. Like, yeah. It's it's about getting those to the top because they often just get drowned out, unfortunately, those mm-hmm. stories. Yeah, it all seems a, a bit complicated. Like there's a lot of dynamics down here that we kind of got to work with. Um, and you mentioned it a little bit, but what is the structure of um, Particle Press like and kind of how does it work to combat that hegemony and that kind of like, you know, homogenous climate i guess that exists here in utah county yeah absolutely so our team uh it's mainly uh, comprised of a writing team Mm -hmm. so and that's even broken up to people that are doing like um like newsbeat stories so things that are hitting quick on the street like Uh um i think when we covered the um roe versus wade protest that happened over the summer or um the BYU queer walkout that I think was like a national protest, which was amazing, organized by the Black Menaces at BYU. But um, so there's people getting photos and stories from there. Cool. um, And then also people that are collecting like poetry, art pieces, and Mm -hmm. then also just narrative pieces from people's lives, stories that, like we've been saying, are not being heard. And then the other half of the team is those that are going to be a part of our social and design team. Mm -hmm. So then getting those stories published. So, And we also do print um, and have two different uh, drop-off locations. So just little portable mailbox, grab Mm -hmm. a leaflet thing for uh, pieces that we feel are like particularly impactful. Cool. And where where are those drop-off locations? So the current one that we have set in stone is outside of Peace on Earth on Center Street. Okay, so it's just cool. a little blue mail house um, mm-hmm. with our prodigal 10-point star sticker on the side of it. And so, and then we just got a second one actually over the break. So most of the stories that we publish are from a submission basis. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, that's kind of like what we're looking for really um, because we're only a team of 20 or so. So we, yeah. we only hear so much mm-hmm. um, and we want to make sure that that's getting out. So we have it on our Instagram and our website that anyone that is interested that would like to get us a piece, they can forward it to us. Um, and so we just have a link on our website mm-hmm. for new writers, what we expect out of a story. We kind of give highlights of um, popular story of ours to show you a voice that we're looking for. Cool. Um, and then also uh, a submission box to our email that then someone from our writing team is then assigned to, to then pick up that piece to workshop with that author cool, to get to okay. a place where they're feeling comfortable to publish it. Um, because I know we already kind of talked about the anonymous thing, but we do publish anonymous pieces for people that would be 
I don't know, particularly uncomfortable with their name being tied to a piece getting mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. but still want to be heard um, because those are often the stories that are like most important. Hmm. Is there a process for vetting submissions or what does that look like? So that's all up to our writing team. Um, I'm unaware of any piece that's been denied. Um, I think there's pieces that probably need a little bit more work than others Mm -hmm. just to make sure that it's fitting like our style guide Mm -hmm. for Prodigal. Um, But really, I don't know, any any story that's that's got that heart to it that I think Prodigal needs will be told genuinely have you guys ever had any like disagreements about what should or shouldn't be published i mean i know you're not on the writing team but have you heard of anything where there's been kind of like pushback or something like that since we're all on a volunteer basis no one's getting paid for it we all really are committed to getting the aim and like vision Mm -hmm. for prodigal done um and i don't think that there's ever been a conflict that's like stopped that from from happening. But what makes Prodigal Press different from other like common maybe institutionalized student journals? Um I think uh the obvious answer would be like the uh, miss like missing final check of the Mormon Church because hmm. any student publication it can have nothing derogatory or dismissive of the church period. Right. It just will not fly. It cannot be published. Um and so there's already like more satirical, but like based publications making fun of BYU publications because it's right. so notoriously, uh, yeah, black and white. That that's yeah. just how it goes. And so, um, I think Prodigal, it it really stepped up. If you look at like the history of BYU, there's always been a student publication that is not authorized by the university. Right. It's been a couple decades now mm-hmm. um, since we've had one uh, before Prodigal, but there's always been one. Um, and they used to back in back in the day when print was alive and well, like yeah. it was pushing so many, so many copies because people were devouring stories that they had never heard before. Yeah. And so Prodigal born during the pandemic, which is not ironic, but kind of mm, a, a coincidence that like it would then bring student publication to a digital age. Because yes. previous to this, this is the only student publication at BYU not authorized by the university that's had a social media presence, yes, which is super really special cool. and cool um, because it reaches an audience um, in a way like that was never possible previous to this. Yeah. And you can get outside of the university. You're also appealing to people outside of Provo and like still giving a voice to people. Have you ever had an experience personally where you felt like your work on the journal was responsible for like real change in your life, in your school, in your community? Um, um, it's a big question. So No, no, no. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a special thing to have um, the login to the prodigal Instagram. After we post a story, we'll normally or post a, an article on mm-hmm. our Instagram. We'll normally put up a story with a question box is like, how did this resonate with you? Yes, you know, cool. like what what did you learn? Or And it's so amazing to see um, pieces that because we're, we're not going to ever publish something that's really, I don't know, very like just negative drolling on like the church or BYU or anything like that because yeah. that's not what we're going for right yeah. that, that goes back to the slogan um, so it's amazing to see someone that like maybe not that they would do anything to like change their lifestyle but they 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 realized a perspective that they had never seen before yeah. and that they that, that they admit that and mm-hmm. it's amazing to see it and you'll see it in the comments but it's super special in the story because People it's send it anonymous, in. yeah. Yeah, because so then we like... post the anonymous responses mm-hmm. that this resonated with me. Or it's amazing to see people who, like, need help and support during, like, a faith transition. Um, I think back we just published an article uh, by Laura Anderson um, about having an eating disorder and the Mormon commandment of fasting mm. and what that was like. And to hear and see so many responses from people that that like never realized yeah yeah, that never realized like how how harmful this was to them and it gave them a new perspective and that they had hope moving forward you know because that's not what it's about like tearing things down that's Mm -hmm. not really what we're looking to do we're we're just hoping to like i don't know bring community to people that have kind of felt lost for a bit yeah yeah and expose people to like different perspectives yeah because even if like no one no one saw like our article or yeah. read it like even just the way that the stories can affect me yeah. is like i've had my perspective completely changed from hearing the work that 
is brought into prodigal from yeah. people. And so I know it's got to be helping other people as well. And like, I feel changed in a way. Can you tell me more about like one of these times where you felt like your perspective, I guess, was changed because of piece that you got to read through the, the, the publication? Yeah, uh, a post that was uh, made last semester um, from Macy Smith. Uh, yeah, uh, Macy Smith. Um, she talked about having religious OCD hmm, okay. and what that like how that was just growing up. And so and this was a really cool perspective from someone that still is like practicing and believing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it resonated with me in ways that I never thought like possible. Um, and then also just made me realize like what a unique perspective everyone has on things. Yeah. You know that there's. It just made me more compassionate towards like people struggling with with that. And, you know, because for me personally, like having a perspective that is now like outside of Mormonism rather than inside it, Mm -hmm. it bridged that gap, you know, that sometimes we build ourselves. Yes. And I think we've talked a little bit about it, but like Utah County is kind of a crazy area to be writing and publishing the sort of material that you guys like tend to publish have you guys ever felt like unsafe or received any direct backlash from the material that y'all have published so we have we've gotten the hate train campaign from like byu conservatives Mm -hmm. whatever the instagram account is and they'll like screenshot our post go and comment blah 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 and then it'll be you know a flock of people coming in to flood Mm -hmm. the comments send dms we've had people harassed for being like quoted as the author for an article Mm -hmm. it's um super sad to see that as a consequence or Mm -hmm. like a repercussion of the work that we do yeah um but at the end of the day it really does just confirm like how important that perspective was yeah in your opinion are there any like i don't know like topics that you feel like are just like off limits or unsafe or just something that you guys don't really want to touch because it might have such negative repercussions um no, I I haven't seen anything be off the table, which I think is important for us as a publication to preach such um unbiased like material, you know, like yeah. for for us to claim that that we're not one-sided and we're not mm-hmm. controlled by something. There's there's never been a conversation that I've seen tabled just because of the the nature Content, of it yeah. or the severity. Do you think that Utah is a safe place? For student journals? Um, I, I think it's as safe as anywhere else, honestly. Hmm. I think everywhere is fighting demons of its, <laughs> of its past, you yeah. know? And Utah, it's just super clear, I guess, in a way. But I, I think everywhere has a fight to be fought, no matter where you go. And that's why having unbiased media is so important is because everywhere's got a problem really what keeps you going in the work especially like a lot of the stuff that you guys publish is like really emotional really heavy um how do you like what what keeps you invested and working on the publication even when it gets hard um because it does. Now that yeah. you mention it, I'm like thinking about it. It is often really heavy content. Mm-hmm. I would say especially at this time of the year where when we're preparing our end of the year um uh, review our magazine of all of yeah. our like pieces that we want to have published in print in a magazine that we sell um after the semester in spring semester. Um it's crazy to see that like none of that would be heard of like previous to this year you know like it's something tangible and real yeah um it it's it's hard when it's on social media mainly because that's our main form of publishing but seeing that magazine um and then knowing that like each page or each spread is an individual story yeah that was non-existent previous to this moment except for in their head yeah it's kind of special Absolutely. I feel like that's a little bit of what I experience on the podcast because I'm like, you have all this story inside you. Yeah. And now like we get to be the people that that bring it to others. You know what I mean? So I think that's a really, really special experience. 
Something meaningful in both Venceremos and Prodigal Press is that they both give voices to the forcibly silenced. This allows marginalized communities to tell their own stories and to write from a position that is based in lived experience. Now, Dr. Lyon Scott Richard, who was a former director of Native American Studies at the University of Michigan and a descendant of the Mississippi Ojibwe of Leech Lake and the Metawakanton Dakota of the Lower Sioux, came up with this term that I want to tell y'all about called rhetorical sovereignty. Now, the word sovereignty alone refers to the political ability of peoples to essentially be independent and autonomous. Basically, that they get to make their own decisions about their own people and resources for themselves. Rhetorical sovereignty, however, describes in a more abstract way how people, especially the marginalized, deserve the right to make decisions about how they are represented and how they get to represent themselves in the world and in public discourse. When stories are told about a group rather than by a group, it means they lack rhetorical sovereignty because the only representation of them that is widely available and accepted is representation that is created by others, which can lead to the perpetuation of stereotypes and mis understandings that result in real material consequences like racialized police violence, anti-trans legislature, treaty abuse on indigenous lands, and a bunch of other rights and protections that can legally be stripped away. Each of those examples is based in a fundamental misunderstanding about the character, culture, experience, and value of the community being targeted that begins with rhetorical erasure and rhetorical violence. All of that starts with what stories are being told and who gets to tell those stories. That means that guerrilla community journals and underground student journals are at the forefront of the fight for rhetorical sovereignty. Community-led journals empower community members to document their own stories and then distribute those stories to others. Journalism has always been tied to activism because every time news is reported and a story is told, it implicitly is taking a stance either for or against dominant social narratives. And that can make media really dangerous, but it's impossible to stop consuming it entirely. Something we gotta understand though is that the media we see every day does influence our views. Ultimately though, media is a reflection of our society and what we value. We create the media and are created by the media. So if we're faced with media that we don't agree with or that doesn't represent us, citizen journalism says that we got to create new media that does represent us, that does hold true to our values, and that is compassionate towards the historically marginalized. When George Floyd was murdered, his death was recorded by Darnella Frazier, who was given the Pulitzer Prize in Special Citations and Awards in 2021 for, quote, courageously recording the video that spurred protests against police brutality around the world, highlighting the crucial role of citizens in journalists' quest for truth and justice, close quote. That was one person, one decision to document something horrific that the community had seen happening for decades. And that decision sparked an entire social movement. And that's what critical mass is. Why is like student journalism important to you guys? Why does it still matter to you after all these years? And why should other people care too? For me, I mean, I, I just look at at history and when there's been like like a sea change in 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 the nation or like shifts about how we understood something it's been youth driven and and so i think that the, there's so much collective power um in that um in that voice in being in that space in those formative years of like really um and being able to that you're not so hardened like that that you think this is this is the way things have to be because that's the way things have always been that that there's a capacity to like see things better see a different vision that comes from being in that space and so i think that taking that voice and giving it a place that vision those ideas that energy giving it a somewhere to go like a journalistic product um as one of the tools to to make that change um, is is continues to be incredibly important, um, and I have so much more hope when I when I look to the to the youth, right, about how things could be better. I remember my family always being like, "Do you get paid to do this? Why are you like <laughs> <laughs> spending so much time doing this thing?" Because I really did contribute and spend a lot of like, I. I feel like I invested a lot of time in it because it felt very meaningful for me while being a part of Encedermos. I remember having this realization of how sad it was that, you know, entire groups of people completely lost the stories of their ancestors through colonization, through all the different ways. And it connected in my brain that there's so many stories that I never got a chance to hear or to learn 
And so for me, journalism and writing things down is really important because it literally is like a record or a history of, you know, the community that I'm a part of and the communities that I guess like imagined that I would have access to these resources and even my parents, you know, that moved here from another country, some of the dreams they never imagined, you know, that could come to fruition for their kids. I think when I think of it that way, it's pretty meaningful um, thinking about Venceremos and the work of Venceremos in that way. Um, and also contributing a little bit in possibly creating a different world where our life and our society considers different stories and values stories outside of the mainstream. Um, I think that that's something that's happening right now and people are almost like remembering that there's other stories, you know, outside of the traditional story. So for me, being a part of that history, and a, a, even if it's just a little part of contributing to that is meaningful and special. This podcast is all about spotlighting student activists and organizers. And do you think that the work that you do with Prodigal Press is a sort of activism? And where, like, how, I guess, does journalism intersect with activism in your mind? Um, I would definitely say I see the journalism that we do as activism. Some people might not change their actions based off of something that they read, but they know something something was off, you know, mm-hmm. that they, they acknowledge, they empathize with someone. I think that empathy can, like, I don't know, lean into action a lot faster than we would like think it could. Now this episode was a crazy one to put together, y'all. Three days may not seem like they make that big of a difference, but for some reason this month, I felt like I only had half the time that I usually do. I got a lot of help though, as usual, so thanks a bunch to our interviewees, Dr. Sonia Aleman, Flor Olivo, and Tucker Pearson. Thanks to our researchers, Carolina, Kenna, and Ari, and our script writers, Danny and Kat. Thanks a bunch to our sound engineer, Sophie, and our editors, Brayden and Jaden. And then thanks to everyone who helped me find those interviewees and then brainstormed the questions to ask them, including Dr. Leandra Hernandez, Dr. Dino Diaz, then Ballet, Tanner, Riley, Brody, and Sav. And of course, thanks a bunch to y'all for always giving us a listen. If we said anything interesting to you, check out the citations we got linked in our show notes. The Center for Social Impact is located in the Student Wellness Building in SC105, right across from the Big Ballroom. We got events every Thursday, so follow us on Instagram at UVU Social Impact to find out what we're doing every week. Critical Mass releases episodes monthly, so come back next month and see whatever the hell else we figure out how to make. Thanks again, guys. I'm Hannah, and y'all were listening to Critical Mass Podcast.